0: I'm Joanne Wilson, and this is Positively Gotham Gal, meaningful conversations with women entrepreneurs about their approach to life, business, and everything in between. Eliza Bank is the founder and CEO of The Sill, a retail brick and mortar and e-commerce platform designed to bring home gardening back into the mainstream. Eliza and I sat down and talked about how she took the sill from idea to a fully realized business with a mission. So plants, plants. So do you always like plants? What was the obsession? Like, was there an obsession with plants? There's something about plants, you know. <laughs> my <laughs> was mother, there something about <laughs> my mother loved
1: plants. Your mother. So my mother always gardened. My home was filled with house plants. I didn't pick up a watering can. Until I started this business, I knew nothing about plants. Uh, the insight came when I did realize that maybe I wanted a plant, and I tried and just killed all the plants. Well, green thumbs
0: are key. Yeah. 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 There's, there's, so, that's a silly saying, but it's not such a silly saying. Yeah.
1: I realized I knew nothing, and I thought it was something that was sort of inherent to you as, I don't know, a human, <laughs> that you would just know how to take care of plants. Right. You don't. Uh, and then I started calling my mother, and I said, well, what am I supposed to do, and where am I supposed to go? And she would bring me these plants and these really ugly containers. No offense, Mom. But um, it was sort of at that point where I thought, well, well this is interesting because, you know, Here's a commodity that's never actually been appropriately marketed no. or merchandised or branded. I happened to be in the brand world at the time. And so that's kind of how my brain worked. And so then it occurred to me, well, I could do that. And here's here's a category that I could feel passionate about too. I mean, prior to the sale, I worked in the beauty industry. And you know, there's only so much $30 shampoo you can sell before you start to feel bad about it. I'm never going to feel bad about selling a plant.
0: Well, that's a good way to look at it. So let's go back. So did you grow up in
1: New York City? I grew up on the western side of Massachusetts in a town called Northampton. Um, Very green, Mm -hmm. um, a little crunchy. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then I came to New York for school. And never left. And never – well, that's not true. So I did end up going back to Massachusetts for a few years. I worked for Living Proof, which is – the the startup that I wasn't in, in the beauty industry. And what did you guys do at Living
0: what did you do at Living Proof?
1: I was a brand manager, but I was also one of the first
0: hires. So, so you got a really nice insight into what it was I got like to, to do start up a company.
1: Everything. I got my operational jobs at Living Proof.
0: Right. So that was a good one. Yes. <laughs> so, you, so you learned exactly what to do more than what not to do or you probably got a balance uh, of both
1: I got both. I, so the reason why I ended up at Living Proof is I was at an agency here in the city and Living Proof was a client and it was prior to their commercial launch, they were in stealth mode. They came to the agency for a consumer brand and I got put on the account because I was their demo and I loved that. And then I ended up going client side uh, and was effectively their first non-C-suite hire. Um, In my four years at Living Proof, I had three CEOs one of them was the managing partner at Polaris. Wow, uh, who you know was new to the beauty industry, and certainly you know didn't expect to find himself as the interim CEO for a year. Right, but he was there because they were going to either do that or fall into a big abyss. Yes, so I learned a ton, both good and bad. Um, in fact, my first lesson was not to raise money too soon, which is a great lesson. Yes,
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it
1: made me. Very skeptical of having too much money um, and making expensive mistakes
0: and too early with wrong
1: and people, exactly, yes, <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> which is a great way to think about it, yeah, so I bootstrapped for five years, which was brutal, but I think um you know whatever success that I have now,
0: I can attribute to the fact that I did that. Well, I remember when you came and talked to me, yeah, and I was like, "Why are you raising money? yeah. Because you were essentially profitable, you know, and you were in a business and you also were ahead of the game. I mean, the whole concept of plants in your home is something that sort of died out and Mm -hmm. returned. Mm -hmm. It's a cycle. I mean, Mm -hmm. for what it's worth, my mother in the 70s um, started a store in Georgetown called The Green Scene. How amazing. And... She was a plant store. Yeah. But she was a very cool, funky plant yeah. store. And um you know it was a storefront in Georgetown and she did everything from office to you just walk in and buy mm-hmm. a great geranium mm-hmm. with um cactus sure. or a hanging plant. Um and one summer I had dislocated my elbow so I could not be at camp. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, spent the summer working at the green scene. That's awesome. <laughs> and made a lot of terranium. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, those
1: came back in full force too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a cycle and we were a little early, but I think that was actually um, great okay. because you know we got to learn a lot of lessons and sort of be prepared for this trend that just hit. Uh, and now we're fully in the upswing of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, this trend definitely hit, uh, which is everyone needs to have a plant. hmm and so talk about the first five years when you were bootstrapping. You know, so you came up with this idea. right? Yes. I need a plant in my life. Yes. And there's an opportunity in this marketplace. Yep. And then, you know, what was your first move? And you had a co founder at one point.
1: Yes. You're right. Who you met. Uh, yeah, the co founding relationship didn't last long. So that was lesson number one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say That was mostly based on the fact that we had two complementary of skill sets. Well, that's a
0: good point. And I always believe that two product people, Mm -hmm. one is going to leave. Yeah. Two of anything. Two of anything. So we were both marketers. In fact, we both worked at Living Proof.
1: And so we were colleagues. We had worked together. We were friends. friends. (laughs) You know, we were like, oh, we can do this. Um, And it was a concept that I had pitched her. And I think part of the reason why I was so compelled to bring her into the fold was that it was my first – You know, point of justification. It was okay if I can convince this one person, then then maybe I can convince others. But in a matter of six months, it was very clear that we were just stepping on each other's toes. And um, because the sale was initially my idea, I had a very strong vision for it, and I wasn't leaving enough space for a co-founder. Right. Um, Turns out I didn't really need one. I mean, for me at least.
0: Well, I'm not so sure everyone needs a co-founder. Yeah. I mean, there is this whole concept that. You know, we don't invest in singular mm-hmm. uh, founders, which I think is utterly r- ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but I do understand because no one is 50-50. Right. Someone needs to lead
1: the Absolutely. Program. Yeah. So
0: uh, that's number one. And number two is, is that the value of a co-founder, even though someone has more stock and is running the ship, is there someone to – sort of commiserate with on those difficult days.
1: Yes, yes. I would say what I missed out on was, you know, I spent the next few years kind of in an echo chamber, right? <laughs> which, you know, uh, can also be tough. But uh, I'm glad that I ended up continuing on on my own. So that was largely the first year. I mean, was actually just navigating that relationship and then moving past it.
0: And what point did you realize? I mean, I I met you super early on.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean- Day thirty, I think it was. Yeah, like,
0: like you just started. You were like in the Kickstarter mode, or right? Something like and that. I was just like, "Don't raise money." Yeah, um, which you didn't for five years. Um, <laughs> I really um, dragged my feet on that. One. <laughs> um, is you know what was it that um when you went out and started talking to people that you decided, wait a second, I'm I'm actually going to just continue doing what I'm doing and navigate this until the timing is right.
1: Yeah, um. Well, it's a great question. I mean, I think in part I can actually attribute it to my relationship with my husband, who's in the venture community and is a VC. And I was learning so much about how it worked simultaneously that it occurred to me really early on what I was going to need in order to be successful as a venture backed company, both prior to raising and then after raising. And I think. Between that and my prior experience at Living Proof, being at a, you know, a highly capitalized company, it was more appealing to me to figure out what it was that I would do with the money first and really understand kind of what my metrics of success were going to be and work towards that. Because the last thing I wanted was to go into, you know, a downward spiral of this business isn't going to work because I can't get funded. I knew the business could work or I still – think the business can work. right? Um, but I set some like very strange, you know, arbitrary goals for myself that I just said, well, let me hit these first. And then I think I can go out and revisit this conversation. I um, mean, I also met with venture capitalists at the beginning just to have, you know, casual conversations. And like you, the best one said, you know, the best way to raise money, sell your product. And so I did.
0: Um, well, I think it's a good lesson. Yeah. I mean, Particularly now, we're in the weirdest time. Yes. I mean, you know, the whole concept of why we're having this huge explosion over the past, really 15 years of startups in every single industry has to do with the advent of amazing technology. Mm -hmm. Even though you're in a consumer product business, you can touch your consumers wherever they may be. Right, And that... Technology has also, with these off-the-shelf products, allowed people to build businesses, find their consumer very quickly, mm-hmm. or um, and and the consumers anything from software to sure. food. I mean, you name it, and then um, and then realize, okay, there's an opportunity to scale here. What do I need to scale um, before I bring in an investor mm-hmm. who does really understand my business? Mm-hmm. But what we're seeing is all these people raising asking to raise huge amounts of mm-hmm. capital, and they're not really even in the industry. Right. Um, and I'm not even sure what they're raising money for.
1: Right. Well, and I would say that – so that's another reason why I delayed was because I was I was not from the industry, and I had so much to learn. And in that made our narrative so much stronger, I think, when we went out to raise because I truly understood the industry – And I wasn't just telling a consumer problem. I was talking about the state of the industry, which was itself a problem. This is a very old industry. Very old. And it is very clear to me now, having existed in it for nearly six years, that something needs to be done to save the industry. And now I feel even as responsible for that as a mission than helping our consumers, um, but they go hand in hand. You know, if if people are meant to be connected with plants, we have to start with
0: the industry so that there are plants for people. Right. Well, it's a, it's a very old school industry. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, and so, yes, I mean- it's one of the oldest. <laughs> I mean, my guess is, I mean, I remember as a kid, we would drive, so we, we lived in Maryland mm-hmm. and we would drive in like an old station wagon mm-hmm. down to these farms. Right in Pennsylvania basically. Mm-hmm. And there were like these large greenhouses. Mm-hmm. And you know, my mom would go in and she had relationships with these people and she'd pick what she needed and then like sometime in the next whenever, yeah, the plants would show up at her door yeah. with like a truck, yeah. you know, and a farmer. And it's not
1: all that different oh. today. Yeah. Um it's not all that different today, but the a lot of them are getting squeezed out because the biggest buyers are the big box retailers, and they can only buy in a certain way and they can only buy at a certain cost at a certain cost and And so not only are you seeing independent garden centers go under you're seeing the growers go under and and I hope that the SIL, you know in some ways helps solve for that or helps save some of that because we can actually buy in a very different way than a big box retailer can. And how do you
0: buy that makes yourself different?
1: Um, Well, we can move product in a way online that doesn't require us to have volume that fills every shelf across the country. Right. So in fact, a big box retailer often buys actually on assortment. Um, So they'll have a certain volume of shelf space they need to fill. And they, quite honestly, don't really care exactly what they're filling it with
0: um just as long as it looks like a plant store
1: yeah just as long as it looks like the garden center for mm-hmm. us you know we actually want to serve our customers up with something that's expected or consistent um we want to be able to tell them this is not just a tropical house plant this is a philodendron or this is you know any number of plants um, and what it does for
0: your home and, and what why it does it's for it's good. Home. Right. <laughs> Every
1: plant has a story. There's so much fantastic content around it that we can serve up to our customers and educate them on. But you can't do that if you don't know what the product is. And for the customers too, if they leave a Home Depot, they don't know what the plant actually is. Something goes wrong. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to- throw it out. Yeah. They're going to throw it out. You can't even Google something right. that you
0: don't know the name of. Did you read the book, The History of Flowers? No. Oh, You should totally yeah. read that book. I mean, it's 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 a, it's about a woman who has a flower shop in San mm-hmm. Francisco and the the history between behind each flower. Oh, that's you know, amazing. When someone comes in and had a breakup and they were like, oh, we need these flowers because the history is this flower is for this. Yeah. Or someone's sick and it's like, well, you should have these flowers because there's history in regards yeah. to what all these flowers Yeah. Mean. So
1: we do talk a lot about that as it relates to plants, their actual origin story, what they're used for, who discovered them, um, how they were brought you know, into commercialization. All of that uh, I think is really interesting for our customers and you just simply don't get that walking into a Home Depot. And I think, you know, that's that's the level um of content that we want to provide and create an
0: experience around that nobody else really seems to care about. Well, their your customer cares. Right, right, which is really interesting. So you you waited 5 years, you were a profitable business? Yeah. <laughs> I were, mean, you weren't losing we were money. Teetering on
1: profitability. Right. I mean, it was a fine line and I certainly wasn't paying myself a livable wage, um, so you could argue that we weren't profitable for that reason. But we were profitable enough. We were still going. Mm -hmm. We existed. We were able to launch nationwide shipping. We had our first storefront in Manhattan, um, and we were growing. So that was all really exciting. Um, But I think at that point, it was very clear to me how big the opportunity was because I was actually looking at the opportunity from both sides, both from sort of the industry and and marketplace, but also the consumer side mm-hmm. and kind of what was happening there, which
0: was it was heating up. It was heating up and it has heating up. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting is that you also have a store. Yes. Two stores. So you have two stores now. Where are mm-hmm. they located? Uh, on Hester Street in the Lower East Side and on Amsterdam on the Upper West. And um, very different locations. Yes. Um, And, you know, what are your thoughts as a consumer brand Mm -hmm. that has been built over five now in six years, Mm -hmm. the balance of uh, brick and mortar versus an online, uh, you know, Mm e-commerce store?
1: You know – I'm a conventional person. I like stores. I don't think stores are going anywhere. Uh, I think for our product in particular, there's always going to be a customer who wants to walk into the store and have a dialogue with Mm -hmm. a human. Mm -hmm. You know, There's always going to be the website if you want to self-serve, but we actually found the store to be um, a really fantastic testing ground. It's an immediate feedback loop that you just don't get online. You don't get from an online survey. You don't get from data points. Um, You only exclusively get from listening to people walk into your store and chit-chat, whether it's amongst themselves or with you directly. And so I think actually the feedback loop that we got from opening the store pre-raise was really – it was really valuable for the growth of the online business. And in fact, we can measure this. I mean, we can literally look at the level of spend within zip codes around our store and see that we have not only a greater volume of online customers around stores, but there's a higher AOV around our stores. Interesting. And that's online. That's presuming they've had a good experience in the store, and then they're going online to shop as well. But the in-person experience allows us to build a relationship and I think have credibility that
0: you just can't have if you're exclusively online. And so you chose those locations based on area code and what was being (laughs) sold on your site? Well, the first location I chose based on price, rent. Yeah, that makes (laughs) sense. It was a bad
1: part of town, (laughs) or it wasn't a great part of town. It's not where someone's like, it's not destination shopping. Actually, now it's changed quite a bit, but our first store um, is 200 square feet, so it's teeny tiny. I've been in your store. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, and and the price was right. I mean, again, it was before we had raised money. I mean, my mother is literally the guarantor on the lease still. <laughs> <laughs> so we we did that. We weren't even we weren't profitable in the first year, but we also didn't lose a lot, um, and we were profitable in our second year, which is actually not bad for Manhattan retail. Which is fabulous. And for now we retail. do just a crazy amount uh, of dollars per square foot out of that store, um, which is really exciting. And in fact, the Upper West Side, we, were, we still weren't really even looking at online data other than the fact that um, what I was actually trying to do was prove – I think from a signaling perspective that the sill wasn't just some hipster brand. I wanted to go to Upper West because, in some weird way, it's more representative of the rest of the country than if we were just to go to yeah, Brooklyn. It's suburban, yeah, suburbia. Yeah, so it's homeowners, it's families. Um, but we were able to see that lift again, and so now we sort of see that you know the sill can stretch beyond just you know the assumed hipster Brooklyn millennial profile. Um, you know, certainly our customers are still young, but um, but I think that was also important, again, even for uh, our investors to be able to say, like, you know, we have legs here. And so when you – so how long ago did you raise money? So we raised our seed in the summer of 2017. Okay. Well, it's not really your seed. Um, you can call it a seed. And then there was a note okay. which closed in January of 18. And then we did our Series A this summer.
0: So you really stuck your foot on the grass, the gas, yes. And you know what has that allowed you to do? Um, and sleep are you well at night. Yeah, I'm sure that's <laughs> for sure. Um, and are your investors people that understand consumer products?
1: So, our lead investor in the seed um, is Andrew Mitchell from Brand Foundry Ventures. And so he exclusively. Who's living in Austin now? Who lives in Austin. Yes. And he exclusively invests in direct to consumer brands. Um, He had a lot of conviction when we first met and has been a tremendous uh, value add, in my opinion. Um, Since then, a lot of our investors have actually been in the media space. So, uh, the Churnin Group uh, did our note. Interesting. And then Rain Ventures. Uh, did our series A. Got it.
0: And and they I'm assuming provide value to you.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Which is great. Yeah. Which is fabulous. Yes.
0: And 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 what is the long term for the SIL as you know, you have a serious amount of capital in your bank. Sure. As well as you have two profitable stores. Yes.
1: So more stores for right. sure. Um but, you know, I think for us we're really trying to Become a category leader where there isn't one. Uh, I think you know, and I think that's actually something that we can, you know, authentically say because there actually isn't a category leader in the, in the plant space, in the gardening space, whatever you will call it. I mean, people don't even know what to call it yet, still, uh, to a certain extent. And you know, there's so much opportunity, and we want to get people who aren't even involved in the space yet to get involved. So you know, five of the six million new gardeners to the space are millennials. We're soon going to all be millennials. <laughs> right. So, you know, someone needs to step up and educate this generation as to how to, you know, incorporate plants into their lives and we think we're the ones to do it. Um and that means everything from product expansion to channel expansion to continued content development. Um do you see yourself becoming more
0: of a vertical operation over time? You know, you look at other consumer brands yep. or Companies where at one point they're like, you know, we can actually make our own products. Mm -hmm. We don't have to source these stuff.
1: Yeah. We do um, you know, the the all of the hard goods are ours. So we design and manufacture all of the pots ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um I mean we don't own the manufacturing facility, so I guess that's not true vertical integration. But I don't Well, they're exclusive to you. They're exclusive to us. I don't see a future Yet at least, but probably not ever, where we're actually growing our own plants. I think that does actually, to a certain extent, defeat the purpose in terms of our mission to help the industry. Um, I also just don't think it would help the business or the customer all that much. Um, It's certainly not an in house expertise we have today, and that would also require a ton more investment um, that I don't think is necessary. So I think there is vertical integration in the sense that, you know, we do own our channels of distribution. Um, We do uh develop a lot of the product in-house, but we don't grow our own plants. And I don't foresee us you know, getting to the point where we're creating new plants. You know, We're not the ones who are going to be hybridizing new orchids. Right, right. That's not your business. Yeah. And how many people are working for you now? So we're at about 45. Right. It's a good um, size. It is a good size. We Well, we manage our own distribution. So we have a facility out in New Jersey, um, which has maybe 25 uh, headcount there and then we have an office space and two stores. So between our, you know, our production team who's um packing boxes and our retail team uh that does, you know, somewhat inflate the headcount like it's not 45 people behind desks. Right,
0: right. And it probably changes in fourth quarter. Yes. Mm-hmm. In a good way. In a very good way, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. And um and so you know, what were your biggest lessons learned over the past you know, six years. I mean, mm-hmm. in many ways, you've been very smart and methodical in regards to the growth. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't um, jump the gun. And, you know, we could sit here and we could, I'm sure, count hundreds of companies that have jumped the gun, yeah. had a great idea, filled a great void yep. all of, of the above but jump the gun with getting in too much money quickly Mm -hmm. and pissing through a lot and finding themselves (laughs) in a really bad position.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think for me, part of it is that my own goal with this is to run a viable business. Um, And I think that's not true for a lot of CEOs, especially a lot of CEOs um, in the startup world. So I think that, to me, is part of my success story is actually running a profitable, viable business, and that changes our strategy. Um it, it also changes, changes the types
0: of investors we have. I was gonna say the same thing it changes it changes the opportunity for you when you walked into the room looking mm-hmm. for capital mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. so but I do think that resonates with some that oh, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> it's not a terrible idea to want to run a viable business or to at least have a CEO who thinks that way. Um, But I think for me, you know, a lot of the lessons learned just happened to be kind of coinciding with the fact that I was also growing up. I mean, I started the business when I was 26, I'm 33 now. Um, So a lot of it was just discovering my own voice, my own intuition, my own instinct, my own leadership style. Um, You know, some of the hardest things with the company have just been around people managing scaling i mean starting out with getting rid of a co-founder yeah from the, i mean from the get go right. none of it's been easy um in that respect but i think you know it's really tested my own conviction in the idea my own you know resilience um but you know i i also have loved every single minute of it and haven't ever thought about trading it in for something else
0: and you're about to have a baby and i'm about to have a baby which is fantastic which i say is- every female founder who is you know in a relationship, married, whatever? Don't wait to have a child.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think the timing there. I mean, and that was also the message that you know landed on me eventually, which was there's never going to be a good time. There's never going to be a good time. So I raised our Series A five months pregnant. Um, and how'd that go? It went well. I mean, I think if anything, it just motivated me to be really thoughtful to run a really good process. Um. To really know what it is that I needed going in, so I
0: wasn't going to waste anyone's time and certainly not my own. Did you have any strange feedback, um, pushback, the fact that you walked in five mi- months pregnant as a female with their consumer product business? <laughs> um, well, so I wasn't
1: totally showing. So it wasn't a conversation I had to have too much. Um, but interestingly, when it came down to it when i was about to sign my term sheet with rain i had this anxiety about when do you tell someone that you're pregnant because to me it didn't really seem like a relevant conversation cuz it's not it's right. not men can't have children it is not a right. relevant conversation right. so at rain though there mm-hmm. was two partners um uh, a woman by the name of Courtney and a man gordon and Go- i knew gordon had kids and i So finally, we're we're getting to the term sheet, and I was so caught up in my own bias that I said, you know, I I have to tell you something. Um, I'm pregnant. And Courtney goes, oh, me too. And it turns out she's due 10 days before I am. And it didn't even occur to me because I was so, you know, concerned with having to share this news that the woman across the table from me could also be pregnant. And so I was just like, oh, great. And it was never even a thing. That's great. So for me, it was a very positive experience. And Andrew Mitchell as well. I mean, he has two kids, about to have a third. So honestly, half of our board meetings are now just talking about parenting. <laughs> um, certainly most of it is actually on the business, but I'm getting more advice on
0: parenting right now from my investors than anything else. That's great. I mean, I had a founder who, I have, as I said, I've said to all of them, do not wait. Mm-hmm. You're going to be so happy you did this, and um, and you'll think, God, why didn't I do this earlier? Yeah, and um, she came to me, she said, Okay, I'm pregnant. I was like, Great, congratulations. So how do I tell my board? Yeah, how do I tell the company? I said, State it like fact, right? Don't apologize, don't say, Here's the big plan, I've thought out a million ways, here's what I'm living, here's what I'm doing, blah, blah. just yeah. it's fact, yeah, and it'll all work because you've always been a good leader. Mm -hmm. And in the end, one has nothing to do with the other. Right. And so far now she's had two children. Great. She delivered that message at a board meeting. Nobody said anything as nobody should except for congratulations. Right.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. So I mean, I feel really optimistic now meeting with other female founders who are thinking about it or are going through the same thing. I mean, nobody should have a bad experience with that. Nobody should. And if- you do then you got to take a, a- a really, you know, hard look at your board and see if they're the right people for you. I mean, I don't know how much you can do about it at that point, but um, everyone to your point should just be supportive and
0: nothing else. Completely. That's great. Well, thanks for coming today. Yeah. Thank you. And congratulations what you built. I mean, it's really great to have watched, you know, considering <laughs> I saw you in the first 30 for days. six years, you yeah. You know, I mean, and uh, you were certainly first to the party and you saw this happening. Yeah. And which is, I think, that most people don't realize, um, and you certainly do. When I mean, you have a husband who's a venture capitalist as well, and you see this, mm-hmm. is you know when you have friends that say, you know, I'm noticing, you know, this now, <laughs> and I'm really into it, and you're thinking, yeah, and we saw it six years yeah. ago, which is why you're seeing it now, right? You know, and you know that's the beauty of the silk. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks. Thank you so much to Eliza for joining me on the podcast this week. I highly recommend you check out The Sill at their locations in New York City. That's the Lower East Side and the Upper West Side or online at www.thesill.com.